Infernos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Brandon. Stephen, how are you this fine day? Doing well. Doing well. Sun came out. First day of summer. A lot of people in Southern California are talking about how the sun is out. As though they're surprised. I think Mm. every year people forget that there's just clouds everywhere. Yep. And now it's like a whole new world. Tis. It's great. Um, Stephen, we have a guest today here on Journos. Very excited, one we've been talking about for a while, and one that I have crossed paths with um, in terms of career a few times. His name is John Mecklin. He's the editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Hello, John. Hey, Brandon. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you uh, for coming on today to talk to us about and we'll try and get into this as gently as possible so people don't immediately tune out in horror, but existential risk, all the things that might creep up on us and get us. And and how you as an editor, as a professional journalist, handle the different things that come along. And then some of the kind of deeper issues of how we as modern citizens of the 21st century get through our day, get through the ins and outs of life. To start, tell us about the bulletin. It's It's got an interesting and storied history. I mean, it came out in 1945. Einstein and some of the scientists started it to keep people aware of the atomic risks or the risks of nuclear annihilation. Um, but tell us about it and tell us how you got involved. I got involved about, what, 12, 13 years ago. I had finished running a magazine called uh, Miller McHugh and subsequently Pacific Standard in Santa Barbara, and uh, a woman who sort of owned it, and I had creative differences. And I looked around, and I had known of Bulletin since, I don't know, the the early 90s, maybe the late 80s, as one of these, I mean, really great magazines that are unaccountably small. And when an opening came up there, I just jumped at it. And a few years later, I was lifted up to become the editor-in-chief. You know, people are always doing that, just like you did, you know, shying away from the notion of doom. It's like you're afraid you're going to scare everybody by talking about the end of the world. And I've I've found it to be the best job in journalism. You get to go every day and you're not creating doom. You're trying to keep the world from blowing itself up. You're trying to save the world every day when you wake up. And that's the best part about the job. Second best part is you never have to write about trivial shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So much of journalism is trivial. And I, on the other hand, and editors that work for me get to spend our time editing and writing stories that are actually consequential. The most consequential stories there are because if there's a nuclear war and civilization is ended, everything you care about, Brandon, won't matter a bit because there won't be any civilization for you to worry about those things in. So these existential threats are, in my mind, of higher order, more interesting, and actually really enlightening to be able to do. It's fun. And to be clear, the other scientists, along with Einstein, who founded the magazine, were among those who worked on the Manhattan Project. So they were clearly very close to these existential risks. And could you just sort of walk us through what is the mission of the magazine at the very highest level? Yeah, sure. As Brandon said, it was founded in 1945, less than six months after the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the, a bunch of the scientists who had helped make the bomb. And 
they started this magazine that at first it was, I think, six pages and it looked like a mimeographed pamphlet. And they had no idea what they were doing. They just knew that most people and certainly the people in government didn't understand that something enormous had changed. They didn't understand this wasn't just a bigger kind of bomb. They didn't understand it was a kind of weapon that could literally end civilization. And there was no defense to it. Uh, and so they dedicated this publication to trying to spread word. As Einstein said, we needed a new way of thinking, a way of thinking that in their hope was to put all atomic technology under international control so no country could have nuclear weapons and threaten the end of civilization. And they obviously failed at that, but have kept trying through the years. So it's founded in 45. In 1947, this is sort of the start of the age of magazines, you know, time and life magazines were the big deal. And they wanted to have a formal, fancy, professional magazine, but they, you know, didn't really know how to do that. They just knew they needed a cover. So they asked the wife of one of the engineers who had founded the magazine to create a cover. Her name was Martiel Langsdorf, and she designed the cover of a magazine that was a clock counting down to midnight. And the hand was originally set at seven minutes till midnight. And everybody always asks me, well, why was it at seven minutes to midnight? You know, counting down to ultimate doom. And that was because, as the artist later said, seven minutes looked good to me. <laughs> and that it stayed at seven minutes for about two years. You know, nobody even thought that the hand would ever move. And then in 1949, the Soviet Union tested its first nuclear weapon. Long, long before people in American government thought the Soviets would acquire nuclear weapons. And this was so disconcerting, both to the editor of the magazine and everybody else, that the editor, a biophysicist named Eugene Rabinowitz, uh, just on his own, he moved the hand. He moved the hand from seven minutes to, I think, three minutes. And that had such an impact on people. It was like magic. And so every so often from then on, when something changed the security situation of the world, they started moving the hands on the doomsday clock, you know. And at first, it wasn't even called the doomsday clock. I mean, I remember they, at the start, sometimes they called it the clock of the apocalypse. And try to say that three times quickly. Clock apocalypse. They missed that opportunity. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice. Wonderful portmanteau. That's a great portmanteau. Thank you. But eventually they came around to the doomsday clock. And over time, the magazine morphed in different ways. The scientists had always known that atomic energy wouldn't be the only thing that the bulletin was concerned about. As other existential threats developed from technology, they knew the magazine would have to deal with them. And so over time, it started to write about all sorts of global threats, including, I mean, the bulletin did a cover story on climate change in 1978. You know, decades before other people were, you know, even thinking about it, or certainly most of the media was dealing with it at all. Between the fall of the Soviet Union, say the early 90s, up into the mid-2000s there, 2005 or whatever, it started to be thought wrongly, but people generally started to think that nuclear weapons weren't, they were like grandpa's worry. They weren't a thing anybody needed to worry about anymore. Because the Soviet Union had fallen apart. Russia seemed quite willing to get along with the West. Everything was going to be hunky-dory. And people stopped generally in society caring as much about nuclear weapons, even though the situation was just as dangerous. So the bulletin had some financial and other difficulties of what, what is the bulletin in an age when 
nuclear weapons seem less threatening. And at that time, they took on climate change. And then a few years later, biosecurity is areas they come. So we were covering pandemics and the possibility that lab leaks would cause pandemics 15 years ago. Mm. The current 21st century bulletin covers four things, nuclear weapons, climate change, biosecurity, and disruptive technologies, of which the big one right now is artificial intelligence. Yeah, when you look at the bulletin's website, you know, at the top, there's the, all the different tabs, and normally a publication will be like, news, movies, uh, <laughs> art, books, whatever, yours is doomsday, nuclear risk, climate change, disruptive technologies, biosecurity, very serious stuff. And every now and again, the bulletin becomes national news or international news. And it's usually around when the doomsday clock is adjusted. And most recently, that happened January of this year when it was set 90 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's been set. And in fact, I notice in your email signature, at the very bottom, it says, it is 90 seconds to midnight in all caps, which I think is, is a really wonderful email signature. Um, right at the top most, of the website, too. And right at the top of the website. And that's all owing to, I mean, according to, you know, the, the piece that accompanies it is, is based on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but starting from kind of a media perspective, I'm always interested in when a journalist publishes something that then everybody runs with. And it's always interesting to watch the reaction among other press when the clock is adjusted because you know, it's kind of the only time that the media writes about a metaphor in like a very serious way. The only other time is, you know, Groundhog Day, right? Like we're going to see what the guy says and that, uh, you know, it's going to determine winter. In this case, it's going to determine nuclear winter. But I'm curious in this case, what you think about the way that those announcements are covered? Like, do you think that it engenders in the media and elsewhere kind of some more interesting conversation? And do you think that that could be handled better? The doomsday clock announcement, which happens in January every year, it always engenders a huge response. It's quite amazing. It's almost magical. And it's, you know, something to do with the power of the metaphor that is really hard to exactly explain why it's so easily grasped. It's just one of those things that I've just explained. Hey, it was just somebody's wife put a clock on the cover of the magazine. Now it's become this thing. And it is a really, truly powerful thing. I think within a month of the announcement this year, there were 12,000 news stories written. Mm. It influences world leaders in interesting ways. For example, the UN General Secretary this year, in giving his opening remarks, essentially used the doomsday clock as the center of his entire speech to the delegates at the UN which you don't see very often, you know, you don't see many magazines or whatever, you know, you publish something and the UN general secretary gets up and, and sort of chides people in the room, you know, with your symbol. So it's kind of interesting to me that it, it's so many things to so many different people. It is treated differently in different parts of the world. In some European newspapers, it's the top story on the front page of a newspaper, is the doomsday clock in Japan in some because of Russian and Nagasaki can be a huge deal. And it's actually sort of bigger around the world internationally in some ways than it is in the United States. As you said, there aren't many times in the calendar when people think about these most important issues. And this is a chance to do that. 
But you know, I'm, I'm well aware there's every year there's criticism. One of the late night comics makes fun of it, and we've come to accept that as our due in life. Hey, you know? so there's a certain power to the simplicity of that metaphor, how immediate it is. In May, Center for AI Safety put out a really short statement on the risk of AI, and the bulletin covered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that statement, just because we have the time, it's only 22 words, reads, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Can you talk a little bit about how AI is complicating things, is adding to things? Is it itself a risk or is it more dangerous as a multiplier to these pre-existing risks that your magazine has been covering and really sounding the alarm about for more than half a century? Hey, that's a smart question. You should be on my board or something. It's how I just went to a board meeting. It sounds like the kind of questions they were all asking each other. Uh, And it's, Yes and yes. You know, artificial intelligence that is in its current formats is a threat multiplier of existential threats. Even at its current level, artificial intelligence can be used in the creation of life form, viruses, whatever that could be extremely dead. There are things that artificial intelligence could be used for. We hope it doesn't come to pass, but in regard to command and control of nuclear weapons, things like that, you know, having actual artificial intelligence making decisions about targeting and when certain kinds of weapons are used and whatever. Uh, Also, just in terms of polluting the information environment, uh, these chatbots that produce extremely authentic-sounding, excuse my French, bullshit that can be spread out so through the internet and sound very believable to people. You know, all of those things are current threats, existential level threats. But there's also the possibility, and here's where a lot of the debate comes in, of is the technology going to progress to become what they call artificial general intelligence that can do, can think and do what humans do, only it's a machine, and that improves itself so that eventually it becomes smarter mm-hmm. than the humans who created it. You know, the philosophers have written quite a lot about, well, if and when that happens, what will the machines think of us? And what will they do with us? Will we just be seen as pets, nice little stupid humans that they keep around just because they're entertaining? Or are they impediments? They just get in the way of what the machines want to do, so they'll get rid of them. And there's a real split among the experts about whether it will arise or will not, or is unlikely to. So uh, I'm personally kind of agnostic. We're going to cover it and see. The conversation about what it's going to be because it's AI is so expansive. You know, it could affect every aspect of life, all, you know, everything from like appliances to filmmaking to obviously uh, nuclear strategizing. All of that stuff is sort of on the table. So again, it's something that people are like, I don't know, it's just this key term that's being thrown at us a lot. And when you try and drill down on how should we even approach this, the one thing that we see, you know, kind of coming out of the woodwork is founders of AI technology like Sam Altman. He's the CEO of of OpenAI, the developer of ChatGBT. And, you know, he comes in front of Congress, talks to politicians and says, we need to do something about this. continually happening. We, as our quality of life raises and as machines and tools that we create can help us live better lives, uh, the bar raises for what we do and, and our human ability and what we spend our time going after 
uh, goes after more ambitious, more satisfying projects. So there, there will be an impact on jobs. Uh, we try to be very clear about that, and I think it will require partnership between the industry and government, but mostly action by government to figure out how we want to mitigate that. Um, but I'm very optimistic about how great the jobs of the future will be. Thank you. And there's kind of echoes of the social media company founders, you know, a decade and a half ago, doing the same thing, going up there and saying, I, you know, somebody's got to regulate this stuff. Somebody's got to do something. And then, you know, either the companies themselves sort of work against that by trying to get laws passed that make sure they have a lot of freedom, or the politicians themselves are just overwhelmed by the complexity of the technology. They don't do anything. So this is something that governments, you know, the U.S. government should be litigating right now. Should it be something that's done at a private level? And how do you think about it? I've sat through recent meetings with very smart people who insisted that they think the AI founders saying, oh my God, regulate us, is just shadow play, ridiculous. Like, want them to be regulated, you know, um, or regulate us until it costs us any money and then we don't want to be regulated. Plus, other people are saying, no, these are actually, you know, honorable people who are really warning about the dangers. I mean, it's going to have to be that you're going to have some kind of regulator that is responsible. You don't just get to make up your techno gizmo anymore. You have to get it approved for safety through a government commission. Now, how exactly that's going to work, it's tough. It is tough to say, you know, and I know that's absolutely hateful speech to people in Silicon Valley. I know because, as you know, I lived in San Francisco during the dot-com boom, and I kind of know how people think about innovation and government keeping its hands on. And what, uh, but when you have technologies that could, in combination with other technologies or by themselves, potentially threaten huge dislocations and maybe threaten civilization as a whole, it seems like there is going to have to be, both in the United States and around the world, agencies that regulate the development of those technologies. There's another perspective that Sarah Godarzi covered in the bulletin in the piece that came out around the big statement, the 22-word statement, in which she quoted Emily Bender from the University of Washington, who also pointed out that perhaps what Bender calls AI bros, when they're screaming, look at this AI monster, perhaps that's also something of a misdirection technique too, to pull focus from some of the other really nasty things that the tech companies are doing. And, and I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. A lot of the alarm that's being sounded especially through that statement, the signatories to that statement were the people who are making it actively. Let me put it this way. You didn't hear any of them say, we used to cut off our access to all the free data we scrape off the internet to make our AIs smart with. Yeah, it's openly available, but nobody was offering it for the purpose they're using it. They're repurposing what I write for the bullet and what I wrote for High Country News mm -hmm. into some chat that tells lies to people. I don't like that. And I didn't tell them they could do that. There was a cardinal sin at the beginning of the internet where the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, essentially just got to use other people's content for free and make money off it, game the system, steal all the ad revenues from existing publications, and cast existing publications as just backwards. And it's the same way with what they're doing now with these AI chatbots. Yeah, they're just gathering up all the data they can for free and using it to train these things. But nobody told them they could do 
It's just allowed because nobody's ever thought, well, that's something of value. And it shouldn't just be out there that these people can just take it and repurpose it in ways that the creators didn't mean for it to be. There also needs to be regulations about equity, ethical guidelines. You know, it's just not okay to scrape all the photos on the internet and use them to reconfigure into other things and not pay the people that took the photos, not pay the people who made the art, not pay the people who wrote the prose. But these are all, as I said, extremely wicked problems. Very, very hard. Even when you sit down with really smart people who are focused on this, it's very, very hard to come up with, well, how would you do that? I mean, you all know what Congress is like. And it was Matt Gates going to bring us to uh, <laughs> proper AI regulation. Marjorie Taylor Greene will co-sponsor. <laughs> yeah, well, we all need a Marjorie Taylor Greene bot to do all of this uh, stuff for us. That's the nice thing about it. All those people can retire and then we can just yeah. have robots doing She's already got an acronym, MTG. Um, MPG bot. Yeah. It's great. John, as the bulletin evolved, there's a perception, right, as you added more, you know, tabs from uh, atomic to climate change, biosecurity, and so on, that there seem like there are more risks. And it's in part, some of them are attributed to new technology. Some of them are just an awareness of the way that we live our lives. But, you know, I talk to people, we get every now and again, you know, you'll get late into the night, and people will have some drinks and, and get serious for a minute. And and, you know, it's really interesting the way people think about the world and the future now in a way that I feel like they're saying things differently than they would 15 or 20 years ago, where, you know, there's kind of a, an abstract sense of, eh, maybe we're doomed, which, you know, is sort of common to human civilization. I mean, it's all over the Bible and a bunch of other books, right? We just, every generation seems to have its own version of that. But we have now some good evidence that, you know, we might be hurtling toward one catastrophe or another. And, you know, some people are sort of like, I just think we're all doomed. And maybe that colors their decisions in life in some way that they're not aware of, or maybe they just wake up and they're a little more depressed than they would have been otherwise. But you're dealing with this stuff as a journalist. You're dealing with the material directly. You're dealing with people who are studying that stuff. And I wonder, just as a person who is tasked with processing all of this, like, how do you deal with it? How do you think about the world? How does it affect your sense of optimism or pessimism? I mean, do you do you think we're doomed? And either way, what do we do about it? Well, despite what I look like on camera, I'm actually a pretty optimistic guy. I mean, <laughs> you've got a very smart jacket. No one is going to say that you're not optimistic. That's, uh, you know, well, as I sort of referenced earlier, it's actually an extremely livening job. I mean, it, it's the best job I've ever had in journalism because, yeah, it's doomy content in some ways, but it's thinking about them at a very high level and like practically how can the world survive these things? You know, and I, I think a lot of the, the general sense of doom you were talking about has to do with people are beginning to see, well, some of these emerging existential threats intersect as climate changes, the world gets warmer bugs spread disease spread to different areas and so the opportunities for pandemics and stuff get greater you know there are intersections between these risks there is a sense of, well gosh it's just all coming together into this one big dooming mess but because i deal with it in individual stories from experts over time I find that these people that study it and try to combat existential risks for a living are usually extremely fulfilled 
and happy people. They are really have a purpose, as I think I do. You know, it may be, you know, ridiculously self-aggrandizing, but I actually wake up in the morning thinking, hey, how can I help save the world? And that's, that's not a, something that lead, leads you to go, you know, you know, drink yourself to death or jump off a cliff or anything. It's like, yeah, these are the hardest problems. But what the hell else would you want to work on? Easy one? Hmm. I kind of like it. Do you believe in the afterlife? Or have you hedged against all of this with some form of spirituality? Got an insurance policy, John, that we don't know about? I am not religious in any ordinary sense. I do not believe in a man in robes sitting on a cloud. <laughs> we will all rise up to. Is there life after death when a human body is just, it's just like ice melting? It's just a change of form. You know, there are a lot of scientists who believe there isn't one universe. There's a multiverse, many different dimensions. We grew up in one of four dimensions, and so we can perceive it. And there might be many other universes of many other dimensions. And how how a life spirit does or does just die when I die or go somewhere else, I am totally agnostic. But in terms of a standard Judeo-Christian, Muslim, any other religion, I just, I'm happy for other people to believe in them. I do not. Stephen, how does that jive? Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. You confirm it. Stephen's a surfer, so he's he's got some cosmic ideas. Some, yeah, I, I, I'm sitting there like shaking my head. I was like, all right, yeah, man. I mean, this guy would get it. Yeah. A couple of times I started writing a novel. It's based on the idea that, you know, when you die, you go to the place where you could see all of creation, but time would not exist there. We would live in a universe where four of the dimensions are expressed and the other ones are, as they say, rolled up. <laughs> so I leave open the possibility that the religions are a metaphor for a possible scientific reality. Well, here's to you showing up to work tomorrow and helping us not find out too soon whether, you know, they were right or wrong. Yeah, I'm telling you, I mean, I'm going to feel pretty bad if I wake up to a nuclear war tomorrow. What a feeling. Okay. You'll feel professionally bad. The rest of us will feel personally bad. One second after the flash, I went, shit, I screwed up. Yeah. We all, <laughs> we all have our own personal apocalypses, I guess. Uh, John, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you? They can find me at the Bulletin website, which is www.thebulletin.org. I'm one of those people who crazily puts my email out. You can find it at Twitter where I am MechDevil, and the email is jmecklin, M-E-C-K-L-I-N, at thebulletin.org. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and yeah. updating us on all the things that are going on. And uh, we'd like to have you back, hopefully, before actual doomsday. The end uh, of the days, and you yeah. can tell us yeah, how things are going. Um Stephen, this has been Journos. I'm Brandon Arundels. And I'm Stephen Jackson. Thanks again, John. Thank you, guys. It was great. We'll see you next time. Thank you.